On episode 70 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, hitting the leadership bullseye. Leaders and companies need to define the dot that everybody needs to aim at. And they need to define it using the cause of the company, the vision of the company, the mission of the company. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Thanks for joining us. I'm Randy Lane. On today's podcast, I talk with Joel Block. He's a financial advisor, CPA, consultant, speaker, and now author. His most recent book is called Stop Hustling Gigs and Start Building a Business. We talk about running a successful business, the future of finance, and how to get everyone focused on the same bullseye. And now, my talk with Joel. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. If we could start, can you kind of just give me a little bit about your background and who you are? Well, my name is Joel Block, and I've spent the last 30 years in the venture capital and the hedge fund businesses. Hmm. So what that means is that investors give me money and and I buy things with them. I buy assets. I'm a professional investor. I started out in the CPA business, started doing tax work for a giant real estate syndicator, which is where I learned this business, the the concept of aggregating money and becoming a professional investor. I left Pricewaterhouse as a youngster, got into this business uh, and and have been in it ever since. I've been in venture, I've been on the real estate side, I've done some film, I've done some, I've, I've done more than 40 projects. So it's been pretty diverse. All right. And you're also an author, correct? Well, yeah, I've written a couple of books and uh, actually recently have a, have a new book called Stop Hustling Gigs and Start Building a Business. And so what's that about exactly? Well, you know, listen, one of the things that, that most service providers do is they jump from gig to gig to gig. And that really is not a, it's not a success formula. It's certainly not a wealth building formula. And so what this is really about is how do you tie together revenue streams? It really is a collection of the great ideas that I've seen and some of the business building strategies that I use from the 30 years that I've been in the professional investing business, building companies and uh, buying and selling things. A lot of the people that listen to our podcast are professional consultants, and this would definitely apply to them. What are some of the things without giving away your secret sauce? What are some of the, some good tips and things that they can listen to today and take away? First of all, there's, there's no secret sauce. There's no magic to anything. (laughs) I mean, there are, there are formulas, there are ideas, and there's execution. And sometimes consultants are better at ideas, and sometimes they're better at execution. You have different kinds of consultants that, that do different things. I happen to be better on the conceptualizing side rather than roll up your sleeves and, and be an operator. There's, and so there's all different kinds. Nobody better than the other. It's just they're different. But, you know, one of the most important things is that uh, a lot of times consultants, uh, you know, like like attorneys and, and certain other kinds of people are so focused on like their hourly rate or, or one certain thing that they really leave a lot of the big money on the table. Sometimes uh, they're so busy looking to the left, the big money's really on the right and, and they kind of walk past it. And that's a big problem. So if you think about like a great business, like let's say a hotel, when you go to a hotel, you buy a room and they offer you upgrade the room and then you can get room service. And then you go to the restaurant, you go to the spa, you can get a movie on the television and go to the gift shop and you, you can, I don't know, all these different things can happen. And, and they have many different ways. I call that a revenue octopus where you have many different ways that money can flow into your business. But most service providers will have one or maybe two different ways that money comes into their business. And that's just not a success formula. Now, I'm not talking about being in many different businesses, but I'm talking about giving customers or clients many different ways of leaving money in your store, whatever your store is, whether it's a real store or a services providing operation. 
And that's really an important formula. You have to give people lots of different ways to do business with you. That's just a good example of one of them. That's actually really good because the consultants that work with us, we have like a system that we go through with companies. And a lot of times companies will approach our consultants because of one particular subject that we're teaching, like emotional intelligence or trust or something like that. And they say, you know, our employees are not trustworthy enough. And so they come and they start working with the company and they realize that maybe trust needs to go all the way to the CEO and the CEO may not see that they have a problem. So we always tell our consultants to kind of look at a company and see what you can offer, what value you can have the largest possible impact. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say as well. It's even a little different. You want to be as broad and strategic as you can, but you still might be offering only the same kind of service. It still might only be one revenue stream, even though you inside that one revenue stream of consulting services, you're doing three or four different kinds of consulting. If you added on assessments, that would be another revenue stream. That would be a revenue stream that didn't involve your time. If you brought on uh, additional people and you took, let's say, a percentage interest in what they were doing to accomplish something else, or if you had, uh, let's say, a contract where the company was going to be sold and you got a piece of the action on the back end, that might be uh, another kind of revenue stream. So there are different ways of making money inside of the same operation. What you're talking about is really going deep inside the organization, and that's very important but you also want to monetize it in a variety of different ways. What led you to, to write this book? What was driving you to say, oh man, this is something that needs to be out there? That's, that's a, it's a, an interesting question because we'd sit at the dinner table with my kids when they were younger. Uh, they're all now, uh, you know, college and beyond, but we'd sit at the dinner table and I would tell them uh, stories about things that were happening and I would share lessons with them. My oldest one who became interested in business and went into uh, the CPA world was very fascinated by this. So we'd share information and even the younger kids who were not necessarily as interested at that time later on became more so. I started cataloging this stuff. And one of the things that I realized is that I really need to write it down for my kids. Mm -hmm. And once I started cataloging all this stuff and writing it down for my kids, and I had a list of hundreds of different strategies and things that I do. And the first volume here is, uh, it's just the first hundred and five or 10, I started realizing that, gee, you know, this is really a, a great catalog of material. I mean, this is how I think. And I think in a rather contrarian way. I don't think in a, a very linear way, which I think is necessary. I think people who are contrarian uh, make more money than other people. Everybody else, if you're an average thinker, you're probably making average. That's just how life works. And so uh, people who think kind of at the, at the margin, at the edges, tend to do either much better or much worse. By the way, both sides, you know, it kind of works on both in both directions. I really wanted to catalog a lot of this stuff for my kids. And when I looked at it, I said, boy, this is really something that would be awesome for a lot of people. And as I started sharing it with some of my professional colleagues, rave reviews. So people just really were freaked out by what they saw because a lot of how I describe things is so different from how other people talk about uh, some of their ideas. Did you have any opportunities or experiences yourself where you were leaving money on the table and you saw that mistake and in hindsight, now you're writing about it? I'm sure I've left plenty of money on the table. We all do uh, from time to time. But there was like, for example, the revenue octopus. I mean, that came out of a specific business. When I was young, I was building a business and I was traveling around. I, I had invented this concept of delivering stock quotes to investors by fax. Me and this other guy came up with this idea in 1990. He was a brilliant technical person. He wrote database software and and I was out selling this concept. And so I would go to a company, I'd fly all the way across the country, I'd sit down with them, I'd ask for a 10 minute meeting, but they were so fascinated that the meeting would last for three hours. 
And at the end of the meeting, I'd say, well, what do you think? Do you want to move forward with this or not? The guy would say, you know, I really like you personally. I don't particularly like this idea. What else do you have? Hmm. And when I thought to myself, I don't have anything else. I kind of realized I need to have a few more arrows in my quiver or quivers in my arrow or bows in my arrows in my quiver. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I need to have a few more things going on that, that I can put out there, you know, so it kind of led me to this concept of a revenue octopus. And, and as our business matured, we had uh, subscriptions and then we added advertising and then we added, you know, the concept of doing service peer work and, and leasing uh, excess space. And I mean, so it just really lent itself well to these concepts and I put a name on it and, and that's where a lot of my stuff, I just, I've, I've kind of come up, come up with a lot of stuff myself and I just language things in my own way. So, you know, people say, well, nothing's new under the sun. Well, that may be true, but what is different is language. And the way I language things is different than how other people language things. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to how I language things. So did you find that you had people that wanted to do business with you because they trusted you, but they they wanted to see more of what you had? And so was the relationship more important initially than your offering or how did that work? My style, I am an expert. I am an expert in, in, in the things that I do. And I have a rule of thumb, and that is that I charge a great amount for what I'm good at, and I give everything else away for free. Mm-hmm. And that prevents me from getting involved in things that I'm really not very good at. I mean, that's okay. the way that I decide, you know, if somebody said, hey, Joel, could you come over and fix my computer? Well, I'm not really very good at computers, but if you want me to work on it, I'll work on it for free. And if I screw it all up, you got the value that you exactly paid for it. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but the stuff that I know how to do well, I mean, I, I, I charge a great amount for it because it's, uh, it's enormously valuable and, and I'm crystal clear about what that is. And so what I typically do is, you know, I talk to people and I tell them exactly uh, specifically what needs to happen to solve their problem uh, before I ever charge them any money. And so uh, when you tell people with great specificity, and this is something that uh, many consultants fail to do. Uh, you know, when somebody explains their problem and you say, here's what we're going to do. I've seen this problem a hundred times. This is exactly what the steps are. One, two, three, four, five. The amount of confidence that a, a potential client has is off the chart. I mean, they just really, they're like, oh my God, no one has ever, ever laid it out like this before. You are exactly the person that we need. We need you to solve this problem. Now, that doesn't mean that I implement the solution, but I might draw a picture of the solution or I might describe the solution to them in a way that helps their team to implement it properly. It's always powerful. So I happen to believe if you're a really good advisor to a company, and if you are an expert in your area, whatever that is, that you should be able to very specifically tell people what they need to do to be able to solve their problems. I really like the revenue octopus idea. Are there any more ideas you can kind of give me that I can share as tips with people that listen to the podcast? You know, one of the things that CPAs and attorneys, and I'm a CPA by my training, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, but one of the things that CPAs and attorneys are very sensitive to is uh, is structure, business structure. And it's, it's not something that a lot of other people think about, but, you know, structure is the way that money moves through your business. Structure is actually what creates so much of the value. It's the reason that guys on Wall Street make a lot and everybody else wonders what happened. You know, really, it's because of the way they structure their transactions. It's the way that the volume of their transactions happen. And one of the things that I talk about in here is that not all money is the same shade of green. And what that means is that not all money is the same. It looks the same to the untrained eye. So let me give you, for example, 
let's say that I gave you a hundred dollars for services, whatever it is you do all day long. And I gave you a hundred bucks and you put it in the bank. When we looked at the bank statement, we'd see a hundred dollars go in. Mm-hmm. If I loaned you a hundred dollars though, to work on your company, uh, we would still see a hundred dollars go in the bank. Or if I bought shares of stock in your company, we'd see a hundred dollars. So when you look at the bank statement, you can't tell what happened, but all three of those things are totally different from one another. And they have totally different outcomes about whether you own part of the company, whether you have an investment in the company, whether you loan money, whether it's revenue. And most people are just not that sensitive to what the structure of their transactions is. They just give me the money and and I'll deal with it later. But the truth is that the structure is really, really important. The tax system in our country is very sensitive to structure. You have have, uh, some, uh, some things are ordinary income, some things are capital income, some are short-term, some are long-term. Uh, there could be royalties, there could be this, that. I mean, there's all different kinds of things and, and everything has its own bu- uh, bucket, its own form on the, on the tax papers. And it's because it's very, very significant how you keep track of these things because the way you keep track of it determines a lot about how much money gets made in the long run. Some structures are much more profitable than other structures. So um, my goal is for people to be sensitive to these kinds of issues uh, and just get people sensitive to, uh, it's not a highly technical book. It's, it's a really a rather small book, but it's packed with all kinds of interesting insights that are just valuable. And they really, it's not all business. It's not all tax. It's a little bit about negotiating. It's a little bit about selling. Negotiating. That's a good one. In general. I mean, it's just, you know, where money comes from, how you raise money. I'll give you another one. And this is, this is especially for guys in your industry. Okay. I would imagine a lot of your guys are lone wolves. They, they operate kind of by themselves. And one of your, one of your consultants is a dear friend of mine Mm -hmm. and he's out there, you know, working by himself. Well, one of the ways that more revenue streams, you know, materialize is by kind of locking arms in a uh, in kind of like a collective bargaining kind of sense where mm-hmm. multiple consultants work together to solve problems. I guarantee if people cooperated better and consultants by and large are not the best cooperators <laughs> because they're, you know, they're a bunch of cats that are kind of all on their own program and herding cats is tough. But one of the things is that if they cooperated and one guy worked on this particular part and another person worked on this particular part and another person did this, that they probably would make more money. But it's really uh, not common for a lot of people because in general, entrepreneurs seem to think that they're going to get all the money that there is out of the account. And the truth is that they're not. Hmm. And and it's really, it's kind of a misconception by a lot of entrepreneurial people that they can do everything, that they can solve every problem and be involved in all kinds of stuff. And that's, you know, that's something I think is very significant too. So you know, lots of little ideas and lots of uh, little ways to go here. You think maybe it's kind of an ego thing? Like they want to be the end all be all of knowledge and they don't like the I, idea of being. No, it's not. It's not ego. I, I think I think it's about money. I think that most people just need the money and they don't want to share and they just want to when they grab onto a client, they're going to try and get out of it, whatever they can. But the truth is the client is underserved in that with that attitude. And the irony is that the consultant probably makes less money than he or she might if they were cooperating with one or more other people. Teams do better than solo people do. And it's something that's very difficult to uh, to learn. But there are certain industries, uh, speakers, I'm a professional speaker. I speak all over the country and I'm very involved in the National Speakers Association, which is one of the great organizations uh, in the country if, if someone qualifies to be a member of it. 
It is just an awesome organization. People cooperate a little, but for the most part, speakers are lone wolves. They're out there doing things by themselves. Uh, there's not a lot of referral business that comes from speakers. You know, it's it's just it's just the nature of the beast. But speakers would do very well to cooperate. They'd make a lot more money if they cooperated, but they generally do not. That's just uh, something to think about. Uh, just a series of ideas for, uh, you know, for people who are uh, looking at this and if they're thinking, you know, how does it work? Well, the reason it works is because there's synergy. And when, if I find a problem that I can't solve, remember I said, I only work on things that I do. Companies have many, many more problems than, than what I do. And by the way, if I start working on stuff that is really outside of my area of expertise, I could be embarrassed and the client is underserved. Right. And that relationship is not going to perpetuate into the future for a long time because it's just a matter of time before I do something silly or or even worse, uh, you know, bad. And I feel like if you have a relationship with your client and they trust you on the subject that you're helping them with, if they say, we also need help in this subject and you say, that's really not my wheelhouse, but I do know somebody who is an expert in that and they can definitely help you, that probably builds goodwill with the other Tremendous. consultant and also with your client. And then maybe in the future, you have more business with both, I would assume. Well, it, it, that's exactly it. It's synergistic. And then and then what happens is then that consultant brings you into his deals, you know, and just all the way around, it just gets better and better. And, and the client trusts you more because when you say to somebody, this is not my area of expertise and we need to get somebody who's going to help you more than, I mean, I can help you a little if you only want a little help, but nobody wants a little help. They want like the full shebang. They want the whole thing solved right now. Nobody wants a partial solution. They want a full solution that's going to make that problem go away. And by the way, from an attitude point of view, another little, uh, one of my little things in the book is that businesses do not have problems. You know, I talk about problems, but the truth is businesses don't have problems. Businesses have expenses. That's it. They do not have problems. Businesses throw money at things and those things go away. You have a lawsuit, you hire an attorney, problem solved. I mean, right. basically, that's the way it works. Now, in your personal life, that's not true. You could have a health illness, you could have relationship problems, you could have uh, all kinds of things where money doesn't solve the problem. So in personal uh, relationships, it's a little different than in business. But in business, there are no problems, only expenses. And that's very important because it helps to create a little bit of separation between you and your business. And when you create some separation from your business, it helps you to make better decisions and be more clear about exactly what it is that you're supposed to be out there doing every single day. Also touching on about structure, you said that you know the structure of money varies wildly. Do you see issues where clients you're working with that the company itself is not structured correctly to make the most amount of money or have the biggest all impact? The, all the time. They might have been structured a long time ago for one thing and the company has morphed into something else over time. That's number one. Uh, number two, they might have an attorney or a CPA who is less sophisticated than they need now. They might have outgrown that person. And it's very common that they will need structures or need certain kinds of things that are more complicated. And remember, I work in the money business. You know, I raise capital and, and I structure transactions. I'm doing things that are not necessarily big. They don't have to be big, but they're a little more complicated than normal. They're not just like a regular uh, set up a little company and, and, and run a consulting. What if you wanted to raise capital? What if you ran into a company that had a really cool idea and they wanted to raise money? I mean, having been in the venture business, that's what I did for a lot of years. Now, I don't broker capital, but I've raised tens of millions or maybe close to $100 million in my career. And I've deployed that into different kinds of companies. That has to be structured just right. You can't fool around with that. I mean, it has to be done right. And, and you don't just go to a garden variety accountant or attorney to make that happen. It has to be done by people who know what they're doing. If you don't go to people who know what they're doing, then you will pay the price. Unfortunately, you won't know that you pay the price until way, way down the line. You never know that upfront. We'll be right back. 
This podcast is sponsored by 360 Solutions. Are you ready to work for yourself as a business consultant? 360 Solutions can give you everything you need to start, build, and run your own practice. In our 20 years in business, we've helped hundreds of people just like you live a fulfilling life developing organizations and leaders in your area. Visit 360 Solutions to learn more or come to one of our high-performance organization workshops. We're hosting them in Austin, Texas and Yosemite National Park this November. Find out more at 360hpworkshops.com. That's 360hpworkshops.com. How do you help a company you're working with? You talked about, you know, companies that are structured a long time ago. How do you help people in kind of this new age realm of the internet and all this stuff? Things are changing so quickly. There's so many disruptors and all these different yeah. industries. How do you help your clients kind of overcome those situations? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic topic. There's a lot of talk about innovation. To me, when you talk to people who talk about innovation, uh, especially, you know, in larger companies, they're talking about turning the uh, the dial on the oven from 350 to 355. I mean, I mean, that's to them, that's innovation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's so little that, that there isn't even any any noticeable increment. I spent my career in the venture capital business where you take a stove, you turn it upside down, you hollow it out, you turn it into, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, right. I mean, they turn it into, they melt it down and then they turn it into something else. That's disruption you right. know, to me the world of where I come from. And you have to make yourself disruption proof. You have to be always asking questions. What's the impact of this action, of this activity? What might happen? And you have to always be asking questions and wondering. Uh, And you also have to be creating momentum all the time. And you create momentum through sales and through, you know, empowering leaders and working with people who are, who are really your strong people. And in fact, uh, you know, I call those strong people, I call them red balls. And the reason, if you look at the cover of the book, uh, you know, what the cover of the book is, it's one of those Newton's cradles, you know, where the ball, you pull one ball back and it hits the other balls and another ball and the other and pops. Yes. And when I, when I look at this, what I really see is I see power, momentum, inertia, force. But what I really see, the very most important thing that I see when I look at this picture is not the, the cradle, is not the silver balls. It's the red ball in the front. It's the ball that gets all the other balls moving. And that's me. That's that's the entrepreneur. That's every leader. That's every leader in every company is a red ball. And companies need to nurture their red balls. They need to nurture the people who are the the leaders, the people that are the most likely to be uh, very sharp and very savvy. They're the ones that are the best at asking questions to help them be disruption proof. Because disruption proof is is the name of the game. I mean, we are. I was at a conference in Silicon Valley here uh, where I speak regularly uh, just about two weeks ago. I saw the most awesome things. I mean, just awesome things that are coming down the pike. Had an opportunity to spend some time with the guy who owns this platform, Zoom, and you know, visit with him. And uh, it's funny, they asked him several questions. What are the key performance uh, indicators, the things that consultants tend to ask? And he'd say, well, it's how much my customers like our service. No, 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 you're not understanding. What are the financial metrics? It's how much the customers like our service. And he was so focused on it that, uh, you know, I mean, it became almost funny. But the truth is, if you lead with one thing, everything else follows. Mm-hmm. And I'm not uh, dis- discounting or discarding the importance of financial metrics because I come from a financial training. I know enough about money to know that that's not really what matters. What matters is the people because people make money. And at the end of the day, if you do a good job with your people, 
uh, everything else is going to go off the chart for you. I've also heard it said that if you if you're an entrepreneur, if you have a company, that you should lead with the passion that you had to start that company in the first place. And so maybe that CEO's passion was for connecting people and making this sort of connection very simple and for making people, you know, happy with the yeah. ability to connect with others and less about how much he's making. I'm sure he's very concerned about that, but he's well, probably more concerned with how happy we are with the service. I, I, I guarantee what that guy knows, he takes a long view and he knows that if his customers are happy, he's going to make a boatload of dough. That's what he knows. And uh, listen, passion is, is a very important thing, but there's a, it's a double-edged sword. Passion and profit are not related together. If you have a good business plan, a good business model, a good business structure, if you have all the different uh, elements in place and you're passionate, that's the, that's the gasoline that's going to make the fire go. A, a lot of passion without the right structures, business models, business plans, and, and other kinds of things in place. And you're just going to sputter in place and, and fizzle out and be nothing. A lot of people mistake some of the technical issues for some of the enthusiastic ones. And, and I'm glad you brought this up because it's very, very important to be passionate, critically important. I love what I do. I got to jump out of bed every day. I love what I do. But at the same time, uh, if I didn't have good structures in place, uh, that passion would just would just go out. Uh, it would go nowhere. It would just literally it would just evaporate because I wouldn't have anything to channel it into. It's the business model, the business structures, and and those kinds of elements that make it work so very well. It's probably why you see the very idealistic visionary leaders with like very good technical co-founders and stuff. So they're the people that can take their vision and their passion and structure it into something that's a viable business model. Every visionary sales oriented kind of person needs those people because especially in a technology oriented world like we live in now. I'm a salesman, although I was trained in finance, I'm primary skill, I'm a salesman and I love to get people to say yes. That's what I love to do. I just love talking to people and get them to say yes. But at the same time, if somebody says, can you build something? I don't know. You know, I mean, (laughs) I, I personally don't know. So that's why I'm dependent on on technical people to help me. And as long as they say yes, then we're good to go. So the people at home who listen to this podcast don't really know the platform that we're on right now. So it's called Zoom and it's a video messaging or video conferencing software type of thing. And we were talking about disruption. If you had a business that was the long distance phone carrier, now your business is being disrupted by something like Zoom because we do a weekly conference call with all of our partners on it. And we have people from South Africa, from all over the world you know, getting in touch with us and it doesn't cost us anything more than our monthly Zoom subscription fee. So that's a pretty good example of disruption right now. And you got to talk to the guy recently who came up with this. So I think that's the guy's guy's an awesome guy. You know, AT&T, though, is one of the very few companies that has managed to stay ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. The trick is in the venture business, little companies start businesses, big companies buy them and they (laughs) operate. And AT&T has done a very good job. They, they, they saw cell coming in the, uh, in the 90s. They saw a lot of the different innovations uh, along the way. And they have acquired those companies. And so they have really stayed out in front, uh, unlike a lot of other companies who've been very stubborn and have not moved the money. So uh, I, I, you know, I don't know uh, who their leadership is per se, but I will tell you that they are one of the companies who has done a brilliant job of being disruption proof. And I won't say that they will always be disruption proof because one little slip could cause a big problem. But I will tell you this, that they have done a really, really good job 
I don't know what they're doing uh, related to Zoom. I don't know how that's going. You know, I don't know. Well, in a similar situation, Skype was bought by Microsoft. So Skype is another tool that I've used for the podcast. And we switched to Zoom because it seems to be a bit simpler for people. But at the same time, like that was a pretty good pretty well-known ubiquitous video conferencing platform and yeah. now it's got bought by a huge company you know i and, and i don't know where that's going to go i mean zoom is just uh is zooming right by skype is what's happening and, <laughs> and it's because you could have multiple people and it's much easier and just the pricing structure is simpler to understand and it doesn't come with all the baggage of uh, you know the microsoft account logging in and it just, it just is, they just have really unbundled a lot of stuff that is somewhat complicated and unnecessary. And they've just, I don't know, this is a great platform and they're, uh, they're taking over. You're a financial expert and you're, we're talking about disruption and stuff like that. How do you see things like Bitcoin and all these other cryptocurrencies coming up in the marketplace? I'm not an expert enough on Bitcoin, although I've been following it for some years. There are several things about it that are very excellent. And there are some things about it that are very problematic. The very problematic part is that it fluctuates in value. A dollar in your pocket is pretty much always worth a dollar. But a dollar worth of Bitcoin five years ago is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars now. It has jumped around a lot. And it can jump in the other direction too. It's not only gone up, it's gone up and down. So somebody could give you a million dollars. And I understand that there was recently a home sold in Silicon Valley for a million bucks, but the guy's Bitcoin ended up being worth 5 million uh, two weeks later. So, <laughs> but it could have gone the other direction too, by the way. The second thing uh, about Bitcoin is that because it's a kind of a, a secret kind of currency and the government doesn't know how to deal with it, doesn't know how to tax it, doesn't know how to get its arms around it, uh, which is probably something that a lot of consumers like the idea. That's what they like about it, the government and the rest of the world has a pretty significant interest in making sure it does not happen. So I don't know, uh, you know how that conflict is going to be resolved, but there are very significant problems that are preventing that from happening. And the government needs to control the money or they're not going to they're not going to go down easily. If they don't if they if the government can't get a hold of their tax dollars, then the government ceases to exist, the power base erodes and all sorts of other problems start happening. But if you're somebody in say Venezuela and your whatever their currency is has gone to nothing because the government has gone to nothing. Suddenly, Bitcoin looks like a good investment. Well, listen, I'm not, I'm not telling you there's not a lot of great things about it. I am, but you know, but one, government doesn't want it to happen, and number two, in general, the fact that it jumps up and down in price is somewhat of a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they're going to stabilize that, and Bitcoin might be reaching the end of its of its reasonable life. I don't know because there's not enough Bitcoin to go around, and they can't really get any more. And so I don't know. It's uh, it starts to be a little over my head. I was talking to a friend about it and I said, well, you know, my dollar is worth my dollar. If I, if I earn a dollar, I have a dollar. And he said, yes, but that's issued to you by a something that you trust, like a bank and a government. And as we saw in the financial collapse, that the government can print more money that's not tied to an actual substance. It used, there used to be a gold standard. There's not anymore. So it's a very similar situation. You're just trusting the government that it's going to stay soluble and that it's going to have funds and it's going to honor that and the banks are going to be able to honor that. So it's it's where do you put your trust, basically? Well, who is Bitcoin? It's nobody who, and everybody. <laughs> it's nobody. That, that's the problem is who are you trusting? You know, and, and we all know that there's a lot of these cyber criminals and, and we, we you don't know who's out there. The federal government, like them or not, they've been around for a while. They're probably going to keep being around for a while. For the most part, 95% uh, they want stability. They probably want a little bit of agitation for whatever reason, but 95% they kind of want all of us to just kind of be happy. And as long as people's money is organized, most of us are going to be okay. 
as soon as our money goes out of whack, we start going crazy. And that's when governments fall and bad stuff starts happening. So the government doesn't really want that to happen. So they really, when the banks had those problems in the uh, late 2000s, government stepped in, straightened things out, actually did quite a very, very good job. It could have been much worse. It could have been much faster, but, but it could have been much worse. They did manage to get us through the crisis in a pretty good way. But one of the issues was us being not able to see the ledgers of these big banks that were making risky loans. And with a blockchain environment, you can see the ledger of all the transactions all the time from many different hundreds of points. So wouldn't that be a more trustworthy, incredible source than us relying on banks and their reputation and the government's reputation? Yeah, we, that conversation kind of going in, kind of, <laughs> but you know, I mean, here's the thing is that it, transparency is a good thing, but people don't understand a lot of what they see. You have to understand that the media and politicians have their own agenda and their agenda is sometimes to wind us all up and get us to be mad at each other and, and fight and scream. And they don't always have an agenda of telling the truth and, and giving us accurate information. And by the way, the truth is kind of a fiction anyway. I mean, what's true for you may not be true for me. In other words, you know, one financial expert could say, well, I'm looking at this ledger of loans and here's what I see. And another expert could say, I see something totally different. And they're both thinking they're telling the truth. So there's pros and cons. Most people are not educated enough to read a newspaper intelligently. And I'm not saying that they're not educated. I'm, what I'm saying is that newspaper editors, and I know this for certain because I sold a company to one of the big newspapers in the country. So I know the newspaper industry very well. I said to one of the editors one time, I said, why do you guys put your opinion in every goddamn article that, that we read? Every single, you know, who cares who you like for president? It's none of your, it's none of your business to tell us uh, who you like. Your job is to say that, that this candidate said this and this candidate said this, and let me decide. Let all, we got 300 million people. All of us went to, went to high school, went to college, and we all are smart enough to figure things out. And their opinion, though, is that we are not smart enough, so they have to give us our opinion. And it turns out when they give us our opinion that they can wind us up in pretty negative ways. And that's uh, evident every single day in the news. If only we could go back to the gold standard of news. Yeah. Or- Tell it like it but is. I will say one, but I will say one thing. Take a look at what happened in Houston a couple weeks ago after that hurricane, you know? All kind of people, every color of people, every nationality, people who live there that was hurting, they all came together. They all worked together very well. Uh, when politicians and when media are out of the way, people get along pretty well. Not perfect, not, not perfect. Nothing's ever perfect. But media and the politicians stir the pot on purpose and they manipulate a lot of citizens and they just make a lot of noise. And that's, you know, I think that's a big problem. So, uh, you know, we all get along pretty well if, if we could get uh, the influence of media and politicians uh, out of our life. Well, thank you for going down that tangent with me. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk. You were saying earlier that you have some new content around leadership, and I'd really love to hear what you have in the pipeline. Well, for that. you know, um, I've, I've been uh, producing a new uh, a new program on, you know, be the red ball. And, uh, you know, it's it's who are the red balls in an organization? Who are the leaders? Who are the people that that get the, the rest of the people going and, and kind of make things happen? Who are the people that ask the hard questions? Who are the people that come up with the revenue streams? I mean, I'm all about increasing revenue for companies, whether it's through sales, whether it's through optimization of, of profit, which is another way, you know, I mean, or, or through strategic planning for, you know, for new kinds of revenue streams. I mean, all of those things produce new revenue. So you have really three big ways where revenue comes from. And really it's about how do you create momentum in organizations? And momentum is is really partly it's sales, partly it's attitude, partly it's about empowering the people who are the red balls in those organizations. And, and it really is all about 
people being on the same side of the table. One of the things that you notice, I've got a concept. Uh, my company is called Bullseye Capital. I've always liked the concept of bullseye, hit the bullseye, and, you know, aim and target and so forth. And we have a concept called organizational bullseye, where all the people in a company are aiming at the same dot on the wall. And if you define the dot in the right way, you can always tell which people have their own agenda that are trying to pull everybody else in a different direction. Leaders in companies need to define the dot that everybody needs to aim at. And they need to define it using the cause of the company, the vision of the company, the mission of the company. And they need to be crystal clear. And every person in the organization should be able to recite from memory a little phrase or mantra that describes those things. They're very simple. I mean, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a, a 10 page mission statement. It doesn't have to be written in language that is so awkward that no one understands what it says. It should be understandable by every person in the organization no matter what job they do. Every person in the organization is involved in selling for that organization. Every person is a salesperson. Every person, the janitor, the secretary, they're all sellers. You know why? Because if you as a consumer walk in and have a bad experience with a person or you call and you have a bad experience, that affects you. That's not just about a salesperson doing a poor job. That is a company culture. And the culture of the company needs to be organized that way. The compensation structures of the company need to reward people in a similar way. By getting people on the same side of the table, everybody wins. And very few companies do a good job of this. And if they did a better job, their results would be better. Their outcomes would be better. Their people would be happier. And it wouldn't just show up in a monetary way, although it would show up in a big way there too. But it would show up as people being more enthusiastic about coming to work and just about having a a culture that would be more successful. All the points that you're talking about are very similar to some of the principles that we use here at 360. Instead of the bullseye, we call it core work. So you identify what is the, the main function that the business has, and then everything comes around that core work. And then you talked about culture. Yes, it's very important. And we're big on um, ownership. Everybody in the company having a sense of ownership and there being enough communication from the CEO all the way down to give everyone a sense of leadership. They are responsible for leading in their capacity and working together yeah. in those teams to support that core work. For sure. You know, listen, like I said in the beginning, you can language these concepts in different ways. I language them in my way, and I, I think that they're easy to understand my way. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways to describe the same thing. There's no magic. There's nothing that's all that new. You know, I mean, the truth is that there have been uh, millions and millions of companies. There have been lots of different people who've described them. There's just ways of describing things. And if it resonates for people, then, then you're successful. And that's the only goal is to get everybody to understand what we're all out here doing so that they can do their job successfully and contribute in a, in a material and good way. So if people want to get your book, get in touch with you, how do they go about doing that? Well, uh, my name is Joel Block. Uh, they can go to Amazon. The book is Stop Hustling Gigs and Start Building a Business. And if they want to reach out to me, they can reach out at joel at bullseyecap.com. Thank you for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. A lot of really good knowledge. Thanks. Hey, man. Well, thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast and shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.